Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Latin, Episode 2 on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and my guest is Dr. Thomas Fleming, who is appropriately broadcasting from the heart of the Latin Empire in Rome. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always. Uh, we, we had a bit of uh, jerk, jerk flu, as I like to call it, effect, Dr. Fleming. Uh, if you've been following his uh, dispatches from Italy, unfortunately, he picked up uh, a bit of a flu from from someone who wasn't considerate on the flight over, and it waylaid our podcasting plans for January. So we want to apologize to our faithful subscribers and members who make this broadcast possible. We are getting back on the wagon, and we will have plenty more podcast goodness for you in the month of February. Uh, and let, me, start, let uh, me put in, let me put in one request. That next time you're flying on a plane and you're convulsively coughing and sneezing, please use a <laughs> handkerchief. <laughs> or consider not flying, perhaps. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's get right into it, Dr. Fleming. This is episode two. Uh, what would you like us to do today? Well, I want to start by borrowing a trick that was played on me by my first-year Greek professor, Kiffin Ayers Rockwell, uh, many, many years ago. Kiffin Rockwell was a fascinating man. He, was, he claimed to be the last person to have volunteered for the Confederate Army. Uh, a, a slight mistake, but um, he he had all he had all the boys in the first day in class, and he handed out uh, the Greek New Testament and told us to read. Well, you know the uh, we didn't know the Greek alphabet yet, and he said, "Oh, don't be silly; it's almost like ours." So we got over that problem in a half hour, and then he said, "Translate, translate." Well, by the way, it's the most brilliant introduction to a class because by the end of an hour. Three-fourths of us knew that this Greek thing was not going to be too tough, and the other fourth dropped out. So, <laughs> so we're going to try the same thing. It's a little different in Latin, but we're, the, uh, the text is Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And Stephen, I'm asking you to read that in, in your best Latin. Okay. So I, I've, uh, I'll have to apologize. I'm going to be using the ecclesiastical pronunciations, what, how it was trained. Good. Well, um, it is the Bible. Abraham. This is true. Abraham genuit Isaac, Isaac autem genuit Jacob, Jacob autem genuit Judam et Flatres Eus, Judas autem genuit Fares et Zara de Tamar, Fares autem genuit Esrom, Esrom autem genuit Adam, Salman autem genuit Boaz de Rakab, Boaz autem genuit Obed ex Rut, Obed autem genuit Yese, Yesse autem genuit David regem, David autem rex genuit Salamonem, ex ea que fuit Uriae. Which is an unfortunate end to the story, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now, this is, uh, this is, of course, the familiar series of begats. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac, uh, however, but Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob uh, begat. Judas and his brothers, etc. Um, and it's even more familiar to us uh, native English speakers by the word order and sequence of names, which don't change their endings, as they, of course, uh, they would do in Latin normally, as if you're beginning to study the language you know. Now, let's imagine, just for a moment, that none of us knows any Latin and we're deciphering a brand new language that's been discovered on mysterious scrolls somewhere. 
So a code breakers will go to the repeated words and see what sense we could make out of them. Genuit or genuit in classical Latin. Autem. Now autem, you notice, never changes. It's an adverb or conjunction, which means something like but or however. You know, it, it sets up contrast. It's unchanging everywhere. So we'll always see autem as autem. And, and this is true of most English words, except for those that uh, have a plural or a possessive form or, or change tense. But let's look at genuit. We, uh, if we follow this word throughout Latin literature, we'll, we'll learn that it has many different forms, dozens upon dozens of forms. We know from our knowledge of English, remember we're dealing with the Rosetta Stone here. We already we know what the English text means. So we know from English that it means he or she begat, or to, what is to beget? It's to cause something to come into existence. So by looking at this word and looking you know, at it maybe uh, in a couple of other places, we would know that verb forms that end in T have singular subjects that, that, that don't include I or you or thou or we, but he, she, or it. This is called the third person. That is the first person being the person who's talking, I or we. The second person being the, is the person addressed, thou or you. And the third person is a person about whom you're speaking he, she, or it. So this T ending, we, we now know this is one way in Latin of uh, making statements about some third person. So with a little help, we've learned two important things about Latin. First, that there are words that don't change, inflexible, unchanging words. These include adverbs like well and surely, uh, adverbs, I'm uh, sorry, conjunctions like because or since or when or although, and prepositions, and you know which form prepositional phrases. Uh, and secondly, there are words that do change. These are inflected words. They have endings to change to show how the word is being used in the sentence. See, in English, unfortunately, we have such little amount of inflection. And even it's confusing there. People in English can't apparently tell between uh, I, the difference between IT apostrophe S and IT and, uh, and uh, ITS. So uh, what are, are there any other inflexible words in this? Well, in this passage, we see et, which, which is the conjunction and, and we see X, a preposition that means out of. So, what about other inflected words, words whose endings do change? Well, we get the name uh, Judas and Judah. Now, of course, most of these names are unchangeable because they're Hebrew names, and they, they don't have obvious uh, uh, forms that you could, uh, you could sort of la make Latin, uh, so, and, they, and they hadn't, that hadn't happened in Greek, so the, so the Romans uh, don't do it. Now, the form ending in S, Eudas is being used as the subject here. You see, uh, let's find it. 
Judas autem genuit fares et zara, etc. So, Judas begat. So we now, we've learned that. So that you could have a, a word, certain names or nouns with an S uh, on the ending. It means that that's the subject. But we see the form Udom with an M. Now we see other words uh, uh, in this passage, uh, particularly look at uh, David Regem, or classical Latin Regem, king. So uh, we see David Rex, David Regem. So the, 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 the form with X, which by the way, X is just CS written funny. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, so it, it's still an S sound. And then the M here. And the M for in Udom and Regim, these show that it's being used as a direct object, the object of the verb. On the one hand, Judas begets. On the other hand, somebody begets Judas. David begets or someone begets David. Now, we're talking then about nouns, and that's mostly what we're going to talk about today. Nouns are uh, names of persons, places, or things. Now, when, when I was in school, and I don't know about you, Stephen, but most people, are, they, they'll recite it. What is a noun? And they'll say, it's a person, place, or thing. I said, really? When, you know? <laughs> yeah, in my, in my age, they added idea as well. So they said person, place, thing, or idea. Except, except it's not. It's a name for a person, place, or idea. You can't, you know, you can't do much with a noun except use it in conversation. You, you know, you can, you can shoot somebody with a gun, but, it, but the, the, the words themselves aren't going to make much of an impact. It's the old nursery rhyme, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but the nouns will never hurt me. Okay. <laughs> Nouns, so then we've got nouns with endings, that, uh, like, for example, Judas, and there are many other ways of skinning this cat, but, but, but Judas, they're subjects of the sentence that are used in the nominative case. Those serving as direct objects, like Udom and Regem, are in the accusative case. So it's much easier to make sense out of a Latin sentence immediately. See, imagine you took uh, you took uh, uh, an English, a familiar English sentence, like uh, like uh, well, to take 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 any sentence. The the hunter shot the rabbit with a gun. Well, if we change the word order, the rabbit shot the hunter with the gun, or the rabbit shot the gun <laughs> with the hunter. You see, you got too many, you got too much Looney Tunes on your mind, Doctor Fleming. <laughs> Yes, the wascally rabbit. The, the thing is that we, we depend on word order. If our word order is at all altered, uh, then uh, we're, we're sunk. Whereas in Latin, word order means relatively little. Now, in future lessons, we'll talk about what are, what's typical Latin word order. But the fact is that you can get away with any order of words in Latin virtually, uh, because it's it, it adds emphasis, but it doesn't really change the meaning. All right. Now, so the the uh, as I said earlier, the we have a lot of uninflected words in this passage, uh, and the reason for that is because they're Hebrew names, and so they're left alone. And it also 
That's why, because they're uninflected, that's why the word order is so simple and repetitive, because the translator, in this case, the translation is basically that of St. Jerome, uh, the contemporary of Augustine. Uh, Jerome had a pre-existing Latin text, and, and there have been changes since then, but really this is mostly a Jerome's text. So he, del- he has to keep it simple, like English, because of the lack of inflection. Now let's go ahead uh, a little bit to the appearance of John the Baptist. If you would read uh, that little sentence, in Diebus Alter. In Diebus Autem Elis Venit Ioannes Baptista Predicans in Deserto Judei, Edicens penitentiam agite ad propinquavit enim renium celorum. Okay, now this is a little more complicated. In, 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 however, in those days, there came John the Baptist preaching or praying in the desert of Judea and, and speaking or saying, uh, ha, uh, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Now, here we note that the subject, Johannes Baptista, could come after the word, Venet, came, because we can do that because the ending, uh, both of Johannes and Baptista, tells us that it's the subject of the sentence. So, uh, we've made this point earlier. So, I, I, I just wanted to begin with this little lesson which takes a very familiar passage, at least familiar for people who were brought up going to church or, or reading the Bible. It, it's one of the most famous passages of, uh, of, in world literature. And, and because it shows you, you can learn some of the basic differences between how the Romans are thinking, that is, that their structuring of their language is, is rather different from the way we structure uh, our language. So then we can move on. Well, and also, too, Dr. Fleming, this builds a little bit on what we were talking about in episode one, but Ioannes and Baptista look to be uh, different declensions, uh, but that, yes. doesn't, uh, that doesn't bother the Romans, uh, sorry, no, not the Latin speakers. <laughs> yes. No, it, it does not, because the important thing is which case is it, not what is the ending. And I've had a devil of a time teaching students over the years just because two words look alike, or because they don't look alike, it this, this doesn't necessarily say anything about uh, what their function in the sentence is, because we have different ways of declining uh, uh, Latin nouns, pronouns, and adjectives, and and they're and they're free to combine them. Also, too, Dr. Fleming, the way that you're making me look at a text today, I'm kind of stepping out of my regular comprehension of, of Latin, and I'm, I'm having this, a student's eyes looking, and I realize I'm kind of tuned into predicons and decens having the same ending, um, yes. which is a, a, obviously a more complicated verb structure. But if I'm looking for those sorts of things that you alerted us to when we were doing the Genuit pas- passage, um, I'm starting to pick up some of these things, and uh, I think it's it's a it's a really good point. Thank you. And you know, another I, I had a series on the internet once uh, of of little essays, which which um, I I uh, I tried. It was a question of reading 
the, the Greek New Testament with the eyes of a philologist, not reading it with not reading not reading it looking for deep meaning, not reading it looking for spiritual lessons. But what do these words literally mean? Because so many words, like for example, kingdom of heaven, right, or, or all sorts of words like grace, forgiveness, temptation. We 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 learn these in Sunday school or in catechism class. We hear them in in, in uh, sermons all the time. But we but in Greek and Latin. They, had, they were very everyday words with long associations before they were taken into the Christian vocabulary. And sometimes by using them in, as a kind of technical vocabulary, as we do you know, the, in theology, we can, forget, we can sometimes forget the basic meanings of the words. For example, a kingdom is a place ruled by a king. It's not a democracy. It's not just any old kind of power. You know, it's a it's a place with a with a sovereign authority, and 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 the word kailum in Latin, heaven. Here it's used in the plural kailorum. It means sky. So we have the you know the the kingdom of the skies. Now I'm not saying that there's means anything particular in this case, but often by being careful. In reading Latin and Greek, in being careful, you can gain really deep insights into both secular and Christian literature. And, so, and the, the things that seem so difficult sometimes to preachers doing a sermon, te- a, text of, a text of the Gospels or St. Paul, actually it, the mysteries clear up very rapidly if you understand the everyday sense of these words in English. Well, so obviously, Dr. Fleming, this begs the question, and obviously we've taken a different turn in episode two than we did in episode one. Uh, can we learn Latin by understanding the structure and then looking up the word, each word, and, and, and matching them with English? Well, that's certainly the way Latin is taught in a lot of places, uh, both to, for, to English graduate st- students, for example, when they take Latin, and I've, and I've uh, been forced to deal with that, but also in seminaries. Both Catholic and Protestant seminaries, they give them a quick outline of uh, Latin grammar, and then they teach them how to look up the words in the dictionary. Um, it probably explains why so few pastors of any uh, denomination know any of the classical languages and why they make so many mistakes, very fundamental and elementary mistakes, when they try to interpret Scripture. You can sort of study Latin that way, you know, sort of muddle through, looking up the words, oh, is that what that word means? Oh, so so there's agape love, and there's, you know, and you, we've all heard those sermons. Um, we, can, we can learn to talk about Latin and Greek as if we know them, but we haven't actually learned. No, absolutely not. There are no shortcuts. Well, we promised our listeners that we would, uh, we would take feedback and, and, Dr. Fleming's got a thick skin, thankfully. So we'll we'll read some feedback from our very first episode. If you'll if you'll uh, um, be patient, Dr. Fleming. Sure. Uh, this was from from a listener. Dr. Fleming appears to ignore even the basic history of the pedagogical text, which he recommends. The current grammar translation method was championed by the Jansenists and German Lutherans. The Catholic model is much closer to the exact text Dr. Fleming dismisses, lingua latina. 
Moreover, he makes the astonishing claim that in the grammar translation method, students are learning Latin like the Romans did. Nothing could be farther from the truth, exclamation mark. Well, Dr. Fleming, how would you respond? Well, uh, I'm sure this is a well-intentioned person, and there are many people who are who are deeply committed to uh, the sort of immersion method of studying Latin. Um, the very fact that you start engaging in these cliche phrases like uh, grammar translation method, as if as if there's as if that that phrase means anything, it, it doesn't. Um, it shows that we're dealing now with an ideological debate. Now, in the first place, when ancient, ancient Roman boys, of course, grew up speaking Latin, perhaps not the best Latin. Quintilian talks about the necessity of having the women in the household who have more to do with boys to make sure that they have good, that they have good Latin. Then they went to, went to school, they learned grammar. It's the first, the, 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 in the Roman curriculum, learning how to make your letters correctly, how to spell words correctly, how to use the forms correctly. There were books on this, or, or, or the schoolmaster at, at, at simply explained the rules and, and dictated them. And eventually, the boys were writing simple compositions. Eventually, if you go far enough, you go into a study of rhetoric, which is how to put together a convincing, coherent uh, uh, piece of writing uh, or speaking. So the fact that they, they they knew the language from babyhood did not mean that they didn't have to study the language. They had learned the language through immersion from, from speaking nothing else, but then they did have to study it. And of course, if you were a literate uh, Roman, you wanted to go on to a, a good career, you would study Greek much the way, say, a 17th century Englishman had to study French. So there's simply no basis for any claim that the ancient Romans didn't study their own grammar. They had to. And we have, we have you know, lots of evidence of their grammar books and what's in them. And some of them, uh, went, some of them persisted for a long time. Now, the, the, uh, when I've talked to people about this, they always say, well, you know, Thomas Aquinas didn't, didn't uh, study how to translate and, and learn all these rules. Well, in the first place, uh, Thomas, we don't know that much about Thomas Aquinas' education. What we do know is how people were brought up at that time. He was brought up speaking an Italian dialect, which is rather close to Latin. It's just a barbarized Latin, but closer than, say, modern Italian is. So he grew up speaking something like Latin. He'd heard it in the church day in and day out, hearing it in prayers. So he, and then, of course, he uh, went, went, you know, it, it, as he uh, began to be ready for the priesthood, of course, he had nothing but Latin immersion. It was the language of the church. And yet they still had Latin. They, they had grammar books. They had, they, 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 they studied Latin. Um, medieval Latin is nowhere near as complicated or as expressive as ancient Latin. You know, that we, we, we lost a lot during this period, but it's clear and coherent and concise. And Thomas, Thomas writes Latin, which is, uh, which is for, for doing what he needs to do, which is to be very clear and precise. The language serves him very well. But if you're, going to, if you're going to say, well, let's learn Latin the way Thomas did. Okay, well, the first thing is make sure you're born in Italy and you grow up as a child speaking Italian. Make sure that you've never been to a church service that's not 100% in Latin. 
Let's make sure that as you begin to study, that you're studying Latin, oh, let's just say 60 hours a week. Whereas the truth is that in the Lingua Latina programs, the, the various programs I've seen, and, uh, and I've talked to the creators of some of these programs, and I'm not saying that they can't be used. I'm simply saying that there is no substitute for if you're going to only have three, four, five, six hours of Latin a week, there's no substitute for the traditional method. And gimmick after gimmick, some of them using computers and all sorts of other things, they simply, I've seen the results in the students, and uh, I'm underwhelmed, to put it mildly. You just can't get away from this. Now, I, I, I think it would be wonderful if you could have, for example, a summer immersion course where all you did was speak Latin. And there are some good books on everyday colloquial Latin that, that you can get, get a hold of. And if you're working with children, I think, you know, having a lot of classroom spoken Latin, all of these things could be very uh, enriching. And I would, I would never want to put, the, put, put it down or denigrate it or anything like that. But, but there's no getting around the, the, the enormous benefits of the traditional, and it's a traditional method because it goes back to the way the Greeks were teaching Greek before the, before the Romans uh, were, were, were getting any kind of education. So this is, this, is, this is a system that's been with us for about 2,500 years. And just to, to toss it aside in the 20th century, because we know so much more than those people did, you know, it's, it's sort of like modern Catholic theology. We can toss aside 1,500, 2,000 years of, of tradition because, because they didn't understand. Poor Jesus, he didn't understand the things we know now. Um, uh, to your point, Dr. Fleming, I guess I have two observations. I didn't think, maybe it's because I've, I had both our Latin heritage and I've also had experience with lingua latina. I didn't maybe get the same tone that this gentleman Took. I didn't think you were being very dismissive. I just think you said, this is, you know, this is how Lingua Latina works. I don't think it will be as effective for X. And I thought you were couching it in the same way that you were talking about Pimsleur, that you, know, you yeah. think that there's a certain effectiveness to Pimsleur. But if you're going to say, I'm going to learn Italian by doing the Pimsleur method, okay, you, you will learn some Italian, but you're going to have some limitations. So I think it's the same thing with um, with with what you were saying about lingua latina. So maybe I just didn't see it as negatively yeah. as no. this gentleman did. That's a, that's, a, that's a very good analogy. It's a very good analogy because, you know, I've worked through the Pimsleur courses, all four of them in Italian twice. Now I, I had, I could read and write Italian very well before I did it. And I speak it pretty well. And I have a, I have a vocabulary, let's just say a hundred times or uh, the, uh, the, to the vocabulary they use in Pimsleur. But it, it beats it into the back of your brain until you, you, you're saying things that you didn't know you could say. That's very useful. It doesn't get you off the hook when you, you know you have to study irregular verbs. You have, there's all these strange tenses in Italian. and you, There's huge, rich vocabulary. You can't, you can't not only not read Dante, you can't read a comic book on the basis of Himmler. So you, you, get, you use these different methods for different purposes. Um, you mentioned immersion. I have heard that there is a Latin immersion course. I think I, I, I have to look it up. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But I think there's one. It runs four, six, eight weeks. 
uh, and they, they make the student sign a pledge, you know, I will not speak English yeah. or any other language during this. Um, and I suppose, again, even within the context of six, seven, eight weeks, you will, you will make some progress, but I don't know that someone's going to be, you know, fluent in Latin at the end of eight weeks of Latin study in the same way that you would, let's say, of eight weeks of an Italian or French study. Am, am, I, am I being yeah. unfair? No, you're not being unfair because the structure because these the structure is so important. And simply learning sentence patterns, as you can do in French or Italian, le- just learning sentence patterns isn't going to do it because you've got to learn all the rules for complex sent for, for for conditional sentences and when to use the imperfect subjunctive and all sorts of uh, things like that. One thing I would would say though that's interesting for those who want to go on and learn Romance languages. Uh, Italian, the rules for the, the difficult parts of Italian where ordinary Italian people on the street make mistakes constantly, uh, they make mistakes because they don't know Latin, because the rules are virtually the same for, for, for in, in the complicated syntactical rules in Italian are, are just a, are a mirror image of, the, of those rules in Latin. So you're way ahead of the game if, if for, uh, for Italian, but also in French and Spanish. Certo, certo. Um, well, let's go back to the, what was it, the grammar translation method? <laughs> I don't yes, what that right, was. Right. Sorry, but let's go back to that. Um, where, where would we start? Uh, what would be the logical starting point for this? Well, most, uh, most Latin books, and I assume that our, our listeners have acquired one or another uh, introductory Latin book and that they're beginning to work with them, they all begin with the first declension, and uh, which is the A declension. Um, if Stephen, could you just recite "decline puella"? You can do it in uh, in uh, in ecclesiastical Latin. Then I will do it in classical Latin. Okay, puella, puelle, puelle, puellam, puella, puelle, puellarum, puellis, puellas, puellis. Uh, that's been there since the Cistercians put it in my head in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, it's interesting how they all put it in your head wrong, too, because uh, it almost you, you did it the way all my students have always done it, because the, the important part is the changing of the ending, right? So that's what we right. emphasize. But, of course, in Latin, you never – the only time I, the last syllable is accented is in a one-syllable word. So it's so the, so it, it's it's to to give it an ecclesiastical Latin. It's puella, puelle, puelle, puellam, puella, puelle, puellarum, puellis, puellas, puellis. So, uh, but but you did it exactly the way all my students have always done it un, until, of course, I got the big stick out to uh, and took after them, <laughs> and because uh, it, it still go. You know, it's like they, they, they try to do as fast as they can, you know, well, 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 you know, and, and it goes on and on. Now, in classical Latin, of course, uh, it's puella, puellae, puellae, puellam, puella, puellae, puellarum, puellis, puellas, puellis. Now, <clears throat> these different endings, of course, are the, the nominative, the genitive, the dative, uh, and uh, the accusative and the ablative, these these different these cases, singular and plural, will show you how the word is used in the sentence, as we as we tried to explain 
in going over the passages from Matthew at the beginning. Now, this first declension is the A declension. You see that the, the, the basic, the, the nominative form, the poella, which is what you look up in the dictionary, so it's also called the lexical form. The, 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 the dictionary form is the nominative, it's the A, and many of these, uh, of the endings had an, have an A, many of them had an, an A in it that, 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 that's been lost. It's, these are mostly feminine nouns, which is convenient because that's the way it is in Italian also. But there are exceptions. For example, uh, there, there, there are agent nouns in Greek ending in the, the syllable tes, meaning an agent noun is the, 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 the person, a person who does something, the actor. And these become ta in Latin. So poietes, the poet, becomes uh, in Latin uh, po- poeta. Uh, or nautes in Latin becomes uh, nauta. There are also a few native words like agricola, uh, which are formed, most of these regular Roman words are formed from verbs. You know, an agricola, uh, agricola, ager means a field. The verb colo, colere means to till or take care of. So an agricola, a farmer, is the person who tills or tends uh, a field. Now, so, but, now, we're going to, as we, as we progress through these lessons, we're certainly going to take up certain peculiarities and exceptions that you might not find in most first-year Latin books. But the big thing is really, if you're, if you're just starting out the study of Latin, or you're teaching your children, or you're stuck in a church school and you haven't taught Latin before, uh, teaching the, the big rules first and drilling them in and teach and, and letting the exception slide for a while. You can't, you can't teach, you can't be perfect. So what you would teach is simply that this is the A declension. It's feminine with a few exceptions, namely nauta, poeta, and agricola. And you can get by with that for a long, a long time. It gets a little more complicated as we go on to the second declension, the third declension, but it, uh, it's good enough for government work, as we used to say. <laughs> well, indeed, your your name, Dr. Fleming, is uh, first declension uh, in Latin as well. Yes, that's right, Thomas. Which, um, of course, is a. Uh, it means uh, it's uh, it seems to be Aramaic, and and uh, in, in it's glossed in the New Testament as Didymos, which is the Greek word for twin. And Didymos, by the way, was a popular name for, uh, for a twin. So, uh, but yes, Thomas is therefore a, uh, a twin, but it, it has, it's, it's treated like a first declension uh, noun. So let's talk then about these, uh, these pesky little things called cases and about the nominative case in particular, because the key to understanding how Latin works, the key is in the nouns and the verbs and in how they're structured and how, and, and how to identify them and how to understand them. So the, 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 to use a Latin noun, 
You cannot count on simply knowing the form you look up in the dictionary. In this case, we're talking about Puella or Nauta or Agricola. Now, in the first declension, it works perfectly because then you just you drop the A and then you add the other entries. In other declensions, it is not so simple, especially the third declension. So you have to get in the habit of learning a noun in your vocabulary this way and this way only in our patented grammar translation method. Uh, you will learn it, first, first of all, you will learn it from English to Latin. And if it, you tell your, you ask yourself, girl. And the answer to the question girl is puella, puellae, or if you're doing ecclesiastical Latin, puella, puelle, feminine. And if you get into that habit right away, then you won't be caught in the third declension wondering, gee, is the word virtue, is virtus, uh, what's, what's the genitive, and is it masculine or feminine? Because so you, you, you start out, here's the E, that's why the A declension is so easy, because everything's predictable. There are no irregularities. You start off with that, well, there's one irregularity. We won't get it. But... Um, <laughs> Well, the, the problem is the, the dative plural of the word goddess, because uh, if, other, if you, it, it looks just like, the, it would look just like the, the, as if it were the word God. So they, they give you a fun. Yeah. So now, so the first case, the case you, you look up in the dictionary is the nominative case. And in, a, in, in traditional grammar books, the, the, the order of the cases is fixed. There's a, there's a kind of revolution going on now. I think it may have started in the Slavic languages, but it's crept over into Greek, and I know it's creeping over into Latin. But the, the traditional order of the cases, which goes way back, is nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative. All right? So if you get a textbook that tries to do nominative, accusative together, just find another textbook. Just throw it away. Uh, I mean, it's just stupid. Why cut yourself off from, from 2,000 years of tradition? It's just, it's just uh, it's, it's a waste of time. That means you can't look at, you don't know what people were studying 50 years ago. So, the first case, the nominative case. Well, it's the case that's, that's sort of, uh, nomen means name, so it's the, it's the word naming it. It is used for subjects and everything that agrees with subjects. But let's be careful. A subject of a finite verb. Subject of infinitive, for example, uh, is, is, is different as it is in English. So the subject of a finite verb, that is a verb that has, that has a person and number. So my friend is John. All, my friend and John would all be in the nominative case. Just because John comes after the verb means nothing because that verb is not a verb. The verb to be, both in English and in Latin, does not take a direct object. It, it, is, it is, we call it a linking verb. That is, it links the subject, my friend, and John, which are the, it states that things are the same. 
So, any any questions on this? It's it's, it's so elementary. I, I I don't want to beat it to death, but we're not used to thinking grammatically anymore, and in English in particular, where they'll they'll, they'll what we used to call a predicate nominative in English, they now call something like subjective complement. Or they did that thirty years ago. I don't know what they're saying. I was taught I was taught predicate nominative back way yeah. back in the Stone Ages when I was in school. But I, I want to take up this what your particular friend here, my, my my friend is John, with what you said originally about word order, because I suppose it takes on a little bit of importance here as opposed to our earlier Waskily Wabbit and the Hunter. If I say Meus amicus est Ioannis, or amicus meus est Ioannis, if I flip that around, Ioannis est meus amicus, right? It still means the same thing, right? It's just, we would say it differently in English, but it still has to say, my friend is John, John is my friend, still means the same thing. So here, uh, the endings still serve you in the same way that you were talking about earlier. They do. And see, in, um, in English, the switch from my from in word order from my friend is John to John is my friend. The switch makes John either my friend is a subject or John is a subject, and everything flows from that. That is not at all uh, so much what happens in Latin. But what does happen is that the word that comes first is emphasized. So uh, it, you, when you say, uh, well, let, let's let's say my friend is Marcus. You know, okay. um, uh, amicus meus est Marcus. So this implies I've got a friend, and it's Marcus. Whereas Marcus, there's this guy Marcus who exists, and he happens to be my friend. So it it there's a sh- and and it's uh, it's much more obvious when you get to things like, uh, for example, let's take something very simple. The boy the boy likes the girl. Puer puellam ama would be the normal. Latin word order. Boy, the girl, in accusative, amat, loves, likes. Now, that's the normal word order, and it has no emphasis. Well, what if it's puellam puer amat? Well, then this is the girl that the boy loves. We have to we have to add in words to show the emphasis. Well, what about amat puellam puer? And it, there, the emphasis becomes you know, how how does it, how do you think the boy feels about her? Man, he loves her. You know, in other words, it's it it by changing the, this these little changes, they 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 change the emphasis, but they do not change the meaning. Yes, and I suppose that's where uh, we can get into a, a bit of the deep end as to how different languages express things differently. I, I guess I'm thinking of either Spanish or Italian. Uh, how you would say I love you uh, is quite different from the sort of very active sense in English, I, I love you, uh, and say like te amo, or, or, or you, you know, you I love, right? Um, yeah. there's, there's almost an entirely different sense to that, uh, even though it's the exact same translation. Yeah. Um, in, in Italian, it's funny because the, in, in, in traditional Italian, for example, there's a real difference between just liking something. Like, do you like you do like cheese? You know, you say, well, mi piace il formaggio. You don't say, io amo formaggio. I love cheese. Mm. But now, <laughs> but now they picked it up, and you hear people say, oh, I amo formaggio. È così buono. You know how people say it on the internet? It's 
so good. Well, the, in, in the Italian equivalent is say così, and they write about five eyes on that. Così, buono. So, so any pop, pop movies in English and things are are cor- corrupting Italian. But in, in in decent everyday French and Italian, uh, you know, you they distinguish between between enjoying something like baseball. You don't say I love baseball. You, you know, you just you don't you can't say I love baseball uh, in good in, in in most languages. Love is a different kind of uh, feeling. I hope it is. <laughs> Well, no, no, I, it's true. I, I do appreciate the subtlety of saying mi piace something as opposed to it, it, there's a reserve. But again, this comes from when you're dealing with languages that have a different way. You have two ways to say thank you, the way you'd say it to a stranger and a way you'd say it yes. to uh, someone. There's all sorts of unwritten senses that, that seep into the way that you communicate. And, and again, it's complicated, but it's also fun. Um, Anyway, I don't want to linger too long on this, Dr. Fleming. No. So we've been talking about nouns and declensions. So what do we call the equivalent for verbs? Okay. With verbs, uh, we, uh, we conjugate verbs. That is, we put the verb through its paces. And, through, and the, the verbs show person, that is I, you, he, number, that is singular and plural, they show tense, which is the time of the action, present, past, future. They show. Um, they also show a uh, uh, voice that is active or passive. I love is different from I am loved. And then finally, and this is very important in Latin, they show mood. Now, I had wise guy students would say, "Well, I'm out of the mood for studying Latin, Doctor Fleming." You know. <laughs> and, uh, and also, if I'd ask them to decline, uh, well, would, would you decline virtus for me? Oh, well, that's all right. I I'll, I won't have any virtus then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've heard. <laughs> I've heard. Of all, but I, when I was an undergraduate, people would say, uh, "Oh, what are you studying, Homer?" So that's Greek to me, as if I hadn't already heard this ten thousand times by the time I was nineteen. So, so we con- <laughs> we conjugate verbs. Now, just as in Latin, we had to find, and I, I didn't, I wasn't precise in the base of the noun. The base of a noun, adjective, or pronoun is that you go to the genitive case, in this case, puellae, you drop the ending. So puella becomes the base of the noun to which you add endings. In the case of the first declension, it seems like a lot of rigmarole. But when you get to other, uh, even to the second declension, it's no longer uh, just uh, obvious. So in verbs, the, what you need to find is the stem of the verb. And there are, you, there are in, generally speaking, three stems of a Latin verb. What we have to talk about now is the present stem. Deriving the present stem is the easiest thing in the world but it is also the most essential. I used to have uh, every day in class, I'd always say, all right, here's a verb. What, how do we get the present stem? Right, let's take an example. We talked about the verb to love, amo, amare. Okay, I love, to love. Amo, I love, amare, to love. 
You do not go to the lexical form. You do not go to the first person singular, amo, which is how you look it up in most dictionaries. But in some dictionaries, they used to use the infinitive, which makes better sense. You go to the infinitive, to love, amare, amare, and you drop the R-E. So that gives you ama. So, right? That is the present stem. And everything about the first three tenses that you'll learn, active and passive, everything you need to know is in that present stem. And if you don't learn it and just try to guess at it and just sort of uh, muddle around, you're always going to be confused. So for, for, for this first class of verbs, which are verbs that end in are, which are first conjugation verbs, like porto, portare, and if you wanted the full thing, it would be porto, portare, portavi, portatum, all right, or, or amo, amare, amavi, amatum, uh, in, to give it the ecclesiastical pronunciation. But there's, that's called the first conjugation. They're all, the first conjugation consists of all verbs whose ending of the infinitive, the infinitive is in, is in are, portare, navigare, it doesn't matter, are, are. So, and, and you just, if, you're, if you're going to be teaching your kids Latin every day, say, how do we get the present step? Until they hate you and are throwing, are throwing things at you. Now, for the second conjugation, which is very similar, and we'll talk much more about the form, we'll talk about the formation of tenses next of the, the present stem tenses. That'll be most of our next show. But the, the, at the same time as we learn the ade verbs, it's valuable to learn the second conjugation, which is like unto it, Namely, the verbs in, in uh, ere, moneo, monere, maneo, manere, sedeo, sedere. What's the rule, Stephen? How do we get the present stem? You go to the infinitive and you drop the re. Exactly. And so that, that defines, so these verbs are defined. The one is the a conjugation, ama, and the other is the E conjugation, of course, the, 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 <coughs> the pronounced A, monere. Now, and next time, we'll show how with this one little tool, I'm beginning to sound like we're uh, advertising a, a, a juicer on television. With this one little tool, you can make shakes and frappes and ice cream. But with this, with this one tool, you will be able to construct the present system of the Latin verb. And the Latin verb, as my old professor Kiffin Rockwell used to say, rolling his eyes is a beautiful thing. And uh, <laughs> there's, we have the sloppiest verbal system in any Western language in English. It is very, if used properly, it's extremely subtle and effective, but it is not beautiful. It is, it is not elegant. It is very, very sloppy. We have to use modal auxiliaries, would, could, should, might, may, you know, am doing, etc. Latin system, it's like geometry. It's extremely elegant. Okay, let's, uh, 
Could I could I just pause here for a second, Dr. Fuzzy? Sure. I wanted to ask. Now, I think obviously it makes a lot of sense. You're you're hammering home that as a student is studying, they need to know the nominative and genitive. That's how you were taught. That's how I was taught. Puella, puella. Um, now, uh, again, I'm referencing my Latin heritage because that was how I was originally taught. But I think they held back, if I remember correctly, I think they held back the other two principal parts until the second year. So we would learn yeah. porto, portare, amo, amare. Do you, do you feel that students should, go, should know all four principal parts, even though they don't know what the other two parts mean yet? Or should, when, they're, when they're memorizing and, and studying vocabulary, do you just want them to go porto, portare, as opposed to porto, portare, portavi, portatus? I have, uh, I have taught it both ways. Uh, I originally taught the conventional way of just I- introducing the uh, all four principal parts as you learn those parts of the verbal system. I do think they have to be learned in uh, by the, by uh, halfway through the uh, the first year, and and putting putting them off can give a very fa- a false sense of security to the Latin student who thinks he really got it when he's got two principal parts. But uh, as I as I taught more and more, I began to see the wisdom, not of introducing it immediately, but of introducing it quickly so that they got in the habit of memorizing, of knowing that you have to memorize all four principal parts. What's, what's, what's the point of not doing it? You see, because here, here's what happens. Let's say you have an irregular verb, you know, or a not really terribly regular verb, like a copio, capere, capi, capto. Or copio capita shapey, I guess, capto. Well, see, if you just learn it as copio capita, or even a even a second declension word, sedio sedere, you know, becomes sedi sexual. It becomes you. What what they'll do in a conventional Latin book is when you finally learn all principal parts, then they'll give you a list of all the stuff you should have learned before. Well, guess what doesn't get learned by the average uh, C-plus student? That's precisely what falls between the cracks. So as a result, as a result, once I'm sort of two-thirds the way presenting the, uh, the present system of the verb, you know, as, as we're beginning to learn a, you know, a few more than just two or three verbs, then I hit them with, this is the way by the end of the term you're going to have to know this, so from now on, this is how you're learning it in vocabulary. And so I would, okay. like whatever book I was using, I would supplement it and say, look, write this down. And I found that um, if the stuff you leave out, if you're, if you're not careful, if the teacher leaves out too much at the beginning, the student's almost resentful <laughs> what he discovers uh, he has to learn a lot more. I noticed that we were talking about Pimsler earlier. You know, Pimsler doesn't like the subjunctive. So in both either their French or their Italian uh, a, a series, so they'll teach you incorrect. Like they'll say, uh, I think you're right. Well, see, in Italian, that has to be subjunctive because it's an, imp- it's, it's an opinion, not a fact. But Pimsler will put it in the indicative as if it's just a regular statement, which means something different. <laughs> You know, it would imply, I, I may say I think, but I really know. And so, and they right. never, because they never want to use the word subjunctive, they, 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 the, the poor student is left, uh, could be left really confused. Now, I'm not saying a word against Pimsleur. I think it's wonderful, but it shows you what happens if you don't study a language 
systematically by the the infamous grammar translation method that uh, we're insisting on. <laughs> um, so we we you walk you made me walk through Puella Puele, uh, uh, Puella etc. Dr. Fleming. Um, there's also a, a system for how we would conjugate the, the verbs. Can you tell us about that? Exactly. Well, the, the verbs go in order as they as they do when we used to learn English. And first, the singular followed by the plural. The first, the first, uh, second, and third person singular. Then the first, second, and third person plural. Let's do porto. So that's porto, portas, portat, portamus, portatis, portans. Right, but you're slipping into into your uh, grammar school ways. Remember, it's porto, portas, portat, portamus, okay, portatis, portant. Right. Needs to have the right accent on the right syllable. Right, on the right syllable, as we used to always quit in school. <laughs> yeah, and um, if you really, if you really want to develop a careful ear, you'll notice that the vowel in portas. Portamos, portatis, that's a long ah. But before the T and before the NT, it's short, portat, portant. And I, I don't know any Latin student or teacher who actually get, gets that right. My, I, by the way, I'm including myself. But there are cases where you, you, you do have to know that portat in poetry, that's a short A. And it's just, it's just a, it, it gets shortened in pronunciation before the T. Um, so the, the, and we'll we'll take up the the formation of the tenses of the of the the three active tenses uh, and uh, next time, but it's it, and we'll talk about the fact that a simple verb like porto I carry can also be translated I am carrying, and also translated as I do carry or do I carry. Latin does not have a lot of the way of modal auxiliary verbs like do, can, am. And it's everything is in the word itself. And, uh, and, and so when, you, when the student is being taught it, he's usually taught in the, in the initial stage to say, porto, I carry, am carrying, do carry. Portas, you carry do carry and are carry. So uh, that, that, that's helpful. Of course, it really slows you down when you're trying to learn the forms. And so people give that up. But I do want to say that when, if you're at this early stage of learning Latin, definitely as you are reciting the paradigms, that is the, the, these forms of patterns of conjugation and declension are called paradigms, the Greek word which means uh, the examples. As you're, as you're reciting or learning the paradigms, every other time, learn them with the translation. Because otherwise, I've had students who could say, they could say all day long, they could say all these things. They could say, uh, puella, puella, blah, etc. But they'd say, well, uh, gee, puellas, what case, what case of number is that? I don't know. <laughs> they don't know because they're just memorizing the order. Yeah, right. yeah. It's yeah, important yeah. to know that. <laughs> Can't you know? It, you know, it just it just doesn't doesn't mean it. Okay, it, well, it, it, is, a it, it, it is a temptation, Doctor Fleming, because I, especially I think I'm thinking again back to my schoolboy days. 
you know, you're, you're 12, 13, and you're, you're racing with your friends to show that you know this cool language that you've, you've just picked up. And, you know, it's more important to go, you know, OST Moosties and as quickly as you can. And, yes. um, and hopefully our listener is a little bit more mature than I was uh, at 12 and will will take the time to correlate the cases and um, the persons as opposed to just uh, working on saying them as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. I wouldn't be. Today, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be too. I wouldn't be too hard on kids, though, because kids enjoy it. And correct them about one time out of ten, so that they know right from wrong. But uh, but I I tend not to crack the whip on on that sing song chant business because it 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 does it certainly will stuff you learn when you're ten years old like that will never leave your brain. Hmm. The, the last segment that we have for today's episode is Latin word for the day, I think is what you called it, Dr. Fleming. What yes. is that? Well, I think we're going to try to make this a regular series. Take, take some words that are English words from Latin and uh, look at them. And these are words which often can only be properly understood uh, if we know Latin and know the literal Latin word. And the, the first one is a, is a very troublesome word. The word decimate. Now, if you read any kind of uh, any kind of a, a, a news report, you know it's they decim they the army was decimated to the last man, or they, you'll even they'll even find it say they decimated the city or they decimated the temple. We use it to mean destroy or annihilate. Two, we, we have words for that. Decimate comes from uh, decimus or decimus, and it means tenth. And it refers to a, a, a pleasant practice of the Roman army. Uh, <laughs> if there was a mutiny or treason, you would have them count off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and the tenth man got killed. By the way, this was still being used in the French Foreign Legion in the 20th century. The French, lo the French love this too. It doesn't imply, we don't, it's nothing special against you. You may be the least guilty person in the bunch, but you, you do understand that if you take part in a mutiny, this is what you're going to get. We're going to kill one-tenth of you. Now, uh, even, even the brothers Fowler, who are the most draconian grammarians, they wrote a wonderful book, The, the, uh, the King's English, back before the First World War, which I urge everyone to acquire a copy of. And uh, one of the brothers, I think one of the brothers died in the war. One of the other brother went on to write a book called uh, A Dictionary of Common English Usage, which was done, I think, in the 30s. It's been redone a couple of times. But even the brothers Fowler don't agree with me on this. They say we, we just have to accept the fact that decimate now means to kill a lot of people. Well, I think... I think we have to, but it certainly can't be applied to buildings or temples or things. But I, I, I don't like this solution because what it means is that a word which has a precise meaning is lost and we gain nothing other than one more synonym for destroy or annihilate, wreck, whatever. And so I think that at the very least we can train ourselves understand what a decimation really is and again you can't learn you can't understand english if you don't know that well and and that, that's such a great point dr let me i find even with uh, some uh, some of our listeners may not know one of the things i, I do for a living is i help uh, students prepare for standardized tests 
uh, those horrible um, banes of our civilization. But um, you have to study vocabulary for that. And I, I've talked about uh, the etymology of Decimi. And when you have a story to tell them, they'll remember it. I'll have students yes. who told me, Stephen, I remember decimate because you told me what the Romans did. And and that's how they remember that word. Um, and then I related to decima, et cetera. Especially if they have a Spanish or Italian background, it clicks for them right away when you when you give them that story. So it's not just helpful for Latin, but as you say, it's helpful for our own language. Yes, exactly. The uh, My other word today, uh, I, was, I wanted to have at least two words. And uh, I was reading a news account of a uh, Hillary Clinton rally and why her people are less and less enthusiastic because Bill is no longer as attractive to women. And so they said he is no longer the nubile young politician he used to be. Well, I didn't think I was going to live long enough to see in print the word nubile applied to a Bill Clinton. All right. First of all, nubile in English normally means an attractive young woman. Okay, it's, it's used a, a, a desirable, sexually appealing young woman. Uh, it, uh, that's a slight misusage because nubile comes from a Latin, a whole cluster of Latin words which have to do with marriage. And a nubile woman is a woman who has, is able to get married and therefore, she's able to have relations with a husband and bear children. Now, obviously, uh, it, the, the notion that she's also appealing and desirable creeps in pretty early. So, but if you just think nubile, people who like thinking nubile just means sexy, then you've lost, that's another word you've lost. It doesn't, now it doesn't mean anything. It's a word we don't need. And by understanding that it means a girl who can get married and who many men would desire as their wife, okay, then the word has some clear, coherent meaning. It can't be a 50-year-old. It can't be Zsa, Zsa Gabor at the age of 80, you know, no matter how attractive she might have been. It means a young woman of marriageable age who men would desire to marry. Now, again, it's, it's, just, it's a simple, dumb example, but really, we are. Lo- I have seen a good deal of the English language lost and ruined in, 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 in my brief lifetime. And the pace of destruction is accelerating all the time. So, you know, brush up on your Latin and, uh, and maybe you'll be able to learn how to, use, to read the, la- the English language as it's been written by its masters for the past 500 years. Otherwise, the situation is hopeless. Well, this is new speak in action, isn't it, Dr. Fleming? I mean, we have that uh, we have a podcast called From Under the Rubble. Uh, this is creating the rubble when we do stuff like yeah. this, where we just yeah. get rid of our own words. And people, if you raise the point to most people, uh, including my own children, under if they're under under forty, they'll say, "Oh, come on, Dad, what's the difference? You know, you're just being a fuddy duddy, uh, you know." And, you know. Uh, surely, you know, back in the day, which is, uh, I don't always say, which day was that? But back <laughs> in the day, you know, people, they had their own problems. I said, yes, but learn, losing these distinctions in language, uh, it means if you, can't, if you can't speak clearly, if you can't be articulate and coherent, then you're not going to be able to think clearly. And so what we have is 
We have, we have scientific papers written in gibberish. Well, of course, we have whole academic disciplines like sociology, which are nothing but gibberish. Uh, no offense to any uh, sociologists out there. But, uh, and, by, by, and by no offense, Dr. Fleming means the greatest offense possible. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, you turn on the news, listen to a political speech. These things, not only do these things are these mostly lies and propaganda and disinformation, but they're gibberish. They, they, you know, they might as well just go blah, 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 with their fingers on their lips because people are using language as if the words mean nothing. When I listen to some of these people, I, I, you know, words for them are like, like, uh, like little magic buttons. If I say uh, weapon of mass destruction, it means you're really a bad guy because, or if I say it's a violation of human rights, or, or these terms, they, they don't mean anything objectively. But, or, or my, one of my favorites is mass grave. They're always finding, if you have an enemy that you want to destroy and you're going to carpet bomb and kill his women and children, the first trick you have is you find mass graves. But you know what a mass grave is called? A cemetery. You know, they actually found mass graves in the former Yugoslavia <laughs> through satellite stuff. Yeah, they were Christian cemeteries. So these these aren't words. This isn't words with syntax with meaning. These are just way, these are just ways of throwing mud in people's eyes. Well, I think that's a good place to end our episode for today, Dr. Fleming. Uh, thanks so much for your time. We, we uh, will leave you to uh, get back to enjoying the Eternal City, and we'll, we'll have you on next month to get on to Episode 3. Good. Excellent.